0: Hey there, and welcome to Now A Men. This is a new podcast series to discuss what it's like to be a man in the 21st century, and how feminist issues are relevant to the lives of men and boys. It's been set up by researchers in the Centre for Research into Violence and Abuse at Durham University in the UK. My name is Dr Stephen Burrell, and I'm a Leverhulme Early Career Fellow. The podcast is mainly hosted by myself and Sandy Ruxton, who's an honorary research fellow. Hi Sandy. Hi Stephen.
1: So each episode is going to be based around a conversation with an expert, that could be a practitioner, an activist, an academic, someone who's got an in-depth knowledge of the issues we're going to be looking at. And we'll be asking them about their work and the research they're doing, as well as exploring their own personal experiences of doing work related to masculinity and gender equality, and how they got involved in the area. Enjoy the episode.
0: Okay, so hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to this uh, episode of Now and Men. Uh, today, we're talking about men's health and well wellbeing uh, with Peter Baker, who's a leading expert in this area, both in the UK and internationally. Yes, P- Peter helped to establish, and he's currently the director of the
1: network Global Action on Men's Health. And for 12 years, until 2012, he was also the chief executive of the Men's Health Forum, which is the UK's leading men's health charity. Uh, before that, he was a health journalist, He's the author of two self-help books for men, and he's been a social policy researcher as well. Um, He's a fellow of the UK Royal Society of Public Health. He sits on the editorial board of the International Journal of Men's Social and Community Health, and he's the author of numerous academic papers, articles and blogs on men's health.
0: Yes, and until 2020, Peter was the campaign director for HPV Action, which is a UK coalition of about 50 patient and professional organisations. And in 2018, he received the Royal Society for Public Health's award for Outstanding Contribution to championing the public's health uh, because of his efforts in getting boys vaccinated against HPV, which is the human papillomavirus. Uh, so welcome to Now men, Peter. Um, the most p- high-profile issue um, in relation to health currently is of course COVID-19, and uh, men's health appears to have fared particularly badly uh, in many countries during the pandemic. Uh, for example, uh, some data recently came out which showed that 11 out of 29 countries studied male life expectancy had fallen uh, by over a year between 2019 and 2020. And in the US, it fell by over two years. Um, So perhaps just to start off with, could you um, tell us a little bit about how and why uh, you think men's health has been impacted so badly uh, by COVID-19? Yes,
2: of course. First of all, thank you very much, uh, Stephen and Sandy, for inviting me to talk to you today today. It's an absolute pleasure to, to have this opportunity to talk to you, be part of this podcast series, and to share some of my thinking about men's health. And um, I think COVID-19 is a, is, a, is a good a place as any to start because clearly it's had a devastating impact on men's health around the world. It's had a devastating impact on everybody's health, clearly. But we've seen that men have disproportionately suffered from a serious uh, COVID disease uh, and have been much more likely to die as a result of COVID. Um, around the world, we, 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 we assume, or we, our best guess, is that 60% of all the COVID deaths have been male. Uh, and that means that so far, and there's still a long way to go, clearly with this pandemic, um, over 3 million men have died um, as a result of COVID and in fact the, the likely figure is, is far higher than that. Now we've, we've got a pretty clear idea uh, uh, about how why this has happened, why men have been so seriously affected. We strongly suspect that um, men have a weaker immune response uh, to these kind of respiratory infections. Uh, we've seen this before uh, with uh, influenza um, and we suspect the same thing is going on here with with COVID. So men are biologically uh, more susceptible, um, but I think there are other reasons as, as well. Uh, part of it is due to men's behaviours. Um, we know that men are much more much less likely than women to uh, wash their hands regularly, for example, uh, to socially distance, uh, to or to wear a mask, and. The attitudinal studies that have taken place suggest that men are uh, more sanguine or more complacent ab- about the possible effects of COVID. There's a sense, I think, of invulnerability in many men uh, that leads them to think if they, that either they won't get it or if they do get COVID, it won't have uh, a serious uh, impact. And in fact, we've also seen that the vaccination figures have been lower in men, particularly men of working age. Um, and especially younger men in their in their 20s and um, and 30s. Um, and I think the other issue, which I which for me is is also very pertinent, is we know we've known right from the start that people with certain underlying conditions are much more susceptible to serious COVID disease. Uh, problems like hypertension, um, uh, lung disease, and so on. Uh, these serious underlying conditions are more prevalent uh, in men. Um, they have been for a very long time um, and one, what this suggests to me is that our failure historically to address men's health means that more men have, have, been, have suffered from these underlying conditions and therefore once Covid came along therefore they were much more likely to be seriously affected by it. So I think that, that we, can, we can put Covid into a bigger context here about the historic neglect of, of men's health as an issue. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I think it's had a bigger impact on men and also if we if we'd worked with men or if we if we if health systems were be- had been better at engaging with men uh, in, in the long term then we'd have known better how to uh, for example uh, support men to take preventive measures um, and to get vaccinated
0: yeah. Yeah, and I mean, connected to that, I suppose we can see, you know, during the pandemic that the health of different groups of men has, of course, fared very differently. Um, For example, men from disadvantaged uh, low income groups have have been much worse affected in many cases. Um, So do you think therefore that a kind of intersectional approach um, to men's health, uh, in other words, kind of understanding how different social inequalities, um, as well as gender kind of intersect uh, and can kind of compound each other you know do you think that kind of approach is important um in relation to men's health and if so um why
2: well i think that's a very good point point. and we've known for a, a, a while i think that an intersectional approach is extremely important this idea that men are some kind of homogenous lump um you know that we are all the same we all do the same things in reg- respect of our health we all have similar outcomes that's that's clearly not true um and and the pandemic has, has given us a very a sort of sharp example of that and we know, as you've rightly said Stephen, that, that men in lower income groups, uh, black men in the UK, the United States and elsewhere and so on, have done particularly badly. Um, so we have to take an intersectional approach, we have to look at which groups are most vulnerable to this disease and, and others uh, and develop our interventions accordingly. We have to focus on those groups in the greatest need um, and work out precisely how we can you know, work most effectively with them, rather than assume that, that men are all the same and th- that the same responses will work for all men. It, it, that, that simply won't happen. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and um, uh, I suppose connected to that, perhaps you, you mentioned about vaccinations um, and the fact that, as, as so as you said, it seems that fewer men, especially younger men, are getting vaccinated, at least in the UK. And and do you have any, uh, you know, possible explanations for that? I mean, do you think, for example, it does connect back to uh, what you were saying about some of the ideas about masculinity and invulnerability, or or do you think it's the influence of like anti-vax groups? Or yeah, do you have any thoughts mm-hmm. on that? Well, I think
2: in in the UK it may be different in the United States, um, where there's obviously sort of political issues completely bound up in um, in the whole the response to to COVID. Um, but in the in the UK, um, where the issues are less politicized, I think that it's um, very much about partly about men's invulnerability, sense of invulnerability. Not all men, of course, but but, but many men's sense of invulnerability, a feeling that it won't happen to them. Or the implications aren't serious for them, but of course there are also you know, practical issues as well, um, mm. uh, in terms of accessibility to services, knowledge of how to access services. I think these are all which are, these are all factors. We can't we can't simply hold men responsible or blame men for their failure to actually you know turn up at a health service. We have to think about how how those services actually uh make themselves accessible to men or um market themselves to men and i think we haven't seen that we haven't seen that historically in men's health services haven't been very effective uh at reaching out to men um and i think the same is probably true around vaccination as well we've seen very little uh um kind of health promotion communication uh there hasn't been much um, marketing of, 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 you know, prevention measures around COVID at men specifically. And I think that, 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 that health, the health service has missed a trick uh, by not doing that.
1: We've talked so far in this conversation mainly about um, physical health and the impact on men, but uh, we also wanted to uh, explore what effect the crisis has had on mental health too, because clearly that's, that's been significant. Um and there's evidence of a range of detrimental impacts, a general increase in rates of depression. But having said that, the number of suicides, so, you know, and I know that's been a longstanding concern in men's health, Mm -hmm. that doesn't appear to have risen in the UK and a number of other countries. And and I was wondering why that would be. Do you have some sort of explanation for that?
2: Um, I don't don't actually, I can't explain why. I mean, when the the pandemic started, uh, we fully expected to see an increase in, in male suicide. Uh, and obviously i'm you know I'm very pleased that hasn't happened, uh, but i can't fully explain why it hasn't happened, particularly against the background of a, of a greater increase in in stress, anxiety, and depression that we have seen. Um, th- those uh, those uh, mental health issues seem to have affected women worse than men, um, although it's, it's difficult to interpret some of the evidence, but it seems to have affected women more. But certainly, there has been an increase in, in men as well. But why that hasn't resulted in high levels of suicide, we don't yet know what the uh, what the answer for that is.
1: I mean, I'm wondering whether we should go back to Durkheim, you know, and, and his um, theories about you know, at times of national crisis, social cohesion, altruism tend to increase, so people mm-hmm. quite often feel less isolated. And Actually, I think there might be something in that, yep,
2: that well in relation be to
1: this uh, mm-hmm. this issue in particular. That may well be true, Sandy, but we don't,
2: that's speculation no, no, sure, really, rather sure. than, we don't really have the, the evidence that, that helps us understand this fully yet, but that, that, that is entirely plausible.
1: Yeah, okay. Um, one of the things we've tended to do on the podcast is to ask people a little bit about their own backgrounds and how they got into doing what they do. So we wondered about how you think your, your experiences growing up influenced the development of your Awareness and interest in gender issues, and your and your involvement in men's health work. What do you What do you remember about learning to be a man when you were younger?
2: Well, that's a really that's a really interesting question. Um, I don't. Just, it's difficult to know where to start. I think in terms of when I think about my my family life, uh, when I was a child and growing up, my father um, maybe wasn't a, a sort of typical bloke, if I can put it like that. He was he was somebody who was he was a very he was a very kind gentleman he um, he was quite emotionally withdrawn um, I think in many ways he didn't talk much, he didn't really talk about his feelings uh, he'd been a soldier in the Second World War um, but was always very reluctant to talk about his experiences except in the most kind of general way uh, so I didn't really have much insight into his, into his emotional life but as I said he was a very kind and gentle man, who was also when I particularly when I was much younger, um, was quite involved in childcare um, and he used to spend quite a lot of time with me and my sister who was four years younger than me so he was quite involved, he was very unusually I think for a man of his uh, generation um, we're talking here about the late 1950s, early 1960s he was quite he was quite involved in, in family life um, So, and he also did quite a lot of housework I remember I remember this quite distinctly, he didn't do any of the cooking I I, did not think he could even bake a potato or boil an egg very, very effectively. But he certainly always (laughs) he always did the washing up. Um, He regularly did the ironing. Um, He uh, vacuum cleaned. He did a lot of stuff that, again, men of his generation probably didn't. Well, many men of his, most men of his generation didn't do. So I didn't really grow up with a a sort of typical, uh, sort of um, stereotyped kind of male role model as a dad um and you know that's something that i'm very grateful for and i and i and I, I suspect that may have had a um a longer you know a longer term impact on me also i was my dad was a a first person in his family to have been to university uh, i was always encouraged to be you know very academic so um you know my learning was encouraged so i wasn't kind of uh a typical boy in many ways either because i was always I had a quite i was perhaps too much interested in in books and and doing my homework and that kind of thing <laughs> uh so i kind of uh i wasn't particularly interested in sport my dad had very little interest in sport apart from watching cricket occasionally on the television so I'm, i didn't have a you know big interest in sport or either kind of typically you know um male pursuits either so i kind of i feel like i grew up in a slightly unconventional way for a boy of 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 my generation um and i think i was uh, always also um was in was i don't know where this exactly came from but i was uh encouraged to kind of be a bit quirky i think when i was young so i was (laughs) it's a bit embarrassing to admit to some of these things now but i i kind of you know, when my, when my, when my—I mean—I was always interested in kind of makes me sound like a real swot. Maybe nothing wrong with that. But I was always interested not not only in academic stuff when I was growing up, but also in classical music rather than pop music, for example, which kind of made me a bit different from many of my peers. I had a I had a real passion for Gilbert and Sullivan opera, operettas. I don't know why that came from, uh, but I was really kind of into that. And you know, went to the Dolly Cart. You know, company in London, and watch this. I was, I was always kind of, you know, had had an interest in slightly different, different things, and um, I was kind of open to different ways of looking at things, different ideas, perhaps not not entirely conventional. And I think when I went to university, I perhaps surprisingly for someone from um, my background, not going to private school, um, going to a fairly, I think, mediocre. State school. I I I got into Cambridge University, um, where I felt completely um, out of place socially. I was never particularly. I was never kind of comfortable there, really. Um, And uh, it kind of. It sounds kind of sounds weird, really, to be in a place of so much privilege, uh, but to kind of in reaction to that. I became intellectually um, uh, quite rebellious and embraced Marxism as a way of, I was studied history, as a way of kind of thinking about, you know, about history and you know other areas of life. So I was this kind of weird kind of mix of being in this very privileged institution, but also having this kind of quite radical politics. Um, and uh, I kind of, from that, I got a, I developed an interest in feminism, started reading about feminism, which you know in the in the mid. As a, as a man reading about that issue in the mid-1970s when I was at university. It was kind of a bit different, I think. Um, so I was kind of you know, intellectually you know, a bit radical, interested in new ideas and discovered feminism. Um, and then, I ha- and then I, um, my first serious relationship was with a, a feminist uh, who kind of encouraged me to think more about that issue and to also reflect on my own masculinity. Um, and you know how, how I'd grown up as a man, or how I'd been influenced as a man, and to, um, and to perhaps take a slightly different perspective um, on what being a man was all about. And from that, I joined a men's group, and started, you know with other men, thinking about our masculinity, and kind of that's where the that's where kind of things led into what i what I've been doing ever since.
1: Well, thanks for that explanation. That's great. I mean, that's really, no, it's really fascinating. I mean, I don't know if you've had a chance to look at the the book that um, Stephen and I and others have recently produced on men's activism against violence against women. But effectively, we look at, you know, the pathways that uh, men who are involved in that area have followed. And, you know, there are some points of of contact with what you've actually been saying. You know, I mean, obviously, relationships with parents is is critical, Mm -hmm. but, but the role of education in particular, comes up very strongly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it seems like, um, particularly when, when you know, young men get to university level and engage with, well, arguments around feminism, but also young women through relationships, some of their ideas very often change and shift at that point. So, so you know, it, there is some similarity mm-hmm. there. But um, I, I, moving on from what you said, I, I know you were one of the co-editors of the anti-sexist magazine Achilles' heel, which was first published, I think, in 1978, and that sought to explore, you know, how men should respond to the challenge of feminism. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it seems like a sort of period piece, you know, which is quite important. But ha- yeah. how did you get involved in that then? And can you give us an a, an idea, a flavour of of the approach that Achilles' heel took, and the issues and activities that that uh, surrounded pro-feminism, anti-sexist yeah. men at that um, time, if you can remember? Yeah, well, <laughs> <I wasn't laughs> you, you look as if you're. Uh, going through your memory banks, there. <laughs> I'm
2: trying <laughs> try to bring it all back. It's a long time ago now. <laughs> I, I wasn't actually involved in a Hill in the kind of first wave um, when you know people like Jeff Hearn and Vic Seidler were involved with it. They were their involvement preceded mine. I got involved in it um, uh, in about 1990, I think, pretty as it was really coming to the end in, in its final years of, of existence. Um, and my route into it was that I'd, I'd previously been involved in a anti pornography campaign called the Campaign Against Pornography and Censorship, which was an attempt to, um, well, it was an attempt to tackle pornography. Following building on the ideas from America by Andrea Dworkin and Catherine McKinnon, trying to adopt their approach and make it relevant to the UK. Um, and uh, I, my particular interest was trying to involve men in the campaign but to also in particular understand why men were you know might be interested in, in pornography and how you could actually support men to give it up So I was trying to, I was trying to understand what the appeal was of pornography to men at the kind of perhaps um, more therapeutic level I mean I'm not a therapist it was kind of quite amateur in a way but trying to you know reflect on what it was that that made a pornography appealing. Uh, to men, in, in, a more, in a more kind of complex way. Um, so it was through that, I mean I, in 1990 I, I helped to organise with the, the campaign against pornography and censorship what I think was one of the first, if not the only, uh, men-only men conferences um, uh, on, on the issue of pornography, I think it was called Men Opposing Pornography, and we had a, an event in London with about 100 people, 100 men, it was all men only, attending to discuss these issues. Uh, we had a, you know, it was a, it was a serious attempt to try and, you know, raise this issue as a men's issue. And it was through that that I met people involved in Achilles' heel, uh, and they invited me to join the editorial collective. And I mean, I, I wrote uh, a number of articles for the for the for the journal on different issues really about about men's experience in different ways different not just about pornography but about other issues as well including health so that's how i got involved but as i said it was towards the end of the Calise hills existence and i mean the magazine had always struggled to reach a, a wide audience um um it was it was really only sold from a handful of radical bookshops um and by that time it it was really it was kind of it, it, was, it was struggling to keep going. Um, and eventually it kind of ran out of steam and, and folded unfortunately. But um, it was a, it was a very interesting and you know, formative experience, really for me. Um, you know working with a group of people that didn't always agree, but certainly shared a, a, you know an interest in developing a kind of pro an anti-sexist but also uh, but something which was also supportive of men, an understanding of men. Um, and not not simply there to kind of bash men and blame men for everything they were doing badly. So I think it was a really interesting project and certainly I took a lot from that uh, into the work I later did on men's health.
1: Yeah. I mean, it it seems to me, looking back, that there were those two strands you you identify, those sort of anti-sexist, but also what I think probably was called men's liberation more at that time, you know, Um, consciousness raising and the connection to men's groups, therapeutic groups and so on. Uh, And there was all that that activity too and you know uh when you look back from today's perspective I and mean, sometimes people people forget that all this activity was actually there and developing and, and perhaps it's informed the stand the strands of the men's movement if I call it such that that exists now you yeah know. I mean I think
2: I think I haven't heard the term men's liberation for a very long time but I remember that <laughs> was a phrase that was that was yeah. used at the time I hesitate to use it now
1: yeah I indeed. Think.
2: but but I think that um yeah, that was a, I, mean, I think that is reflected in certainly you know, the, the ways that many of us try and talk about men's health today, uh, which is to try and you know, not see men in a, in a negative way, not to blame men for the, the risks they take or the things that maybe they don't do as well as they, as they could in relation to their health, but to understand why that is, and to support men to perhaps take a different perspective on their health, but also to build on men's strengths because there are a lot of men who are, you know, do look after their health very well. This idea that all men you know, don't go to the doctor, or all men smoke, or all men drink too much, it's simply not true. If you look at, at men in, uh, as a whole, most men, the vast majority of men don't smoke uh, globally. The vast majority of men don't drink too much. You know, GP waiting rooms and hospitals are full of men who are going to the doctor. <laughs> it's not like no men ever go to the doctor, that's ridiculous. Um, mm. So I think there are, you know, our men who are doing things, a lot of things very well when it comes to their health. There are still things that many men could do better. But we need to learn from those men who are doing things, mm. posi- you know, positive things and see how we can, you know, use that insight to support um, maybe the men who aren't doing quite so well. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Thanks for that. And, and, and just to go back to your point about pornography, because I thought that was interesting, too. I mean, you know, obviously since the time that you you were involved in that campaign... And particularly more recently, there's an absolute explosion of, of pornography online, you know, and uh, I'm wondering how you see that, given, you know, the attempts that were made earlier to do something about it. You know, what, what should we make of that? And how do we how do well, we I mean, tackle I, that? I mean,
2: it is extraordinary because when we were doing this work on pornography, it was all top shelf magazines and under the counter videos in sort of video shops. It was I wouldn't say it was impossible for men to get hold of it at all, but it was it was very different very very different from you know men's experience of pornography now and how accessible it is um, and you know I have, I have to, it's not an issue that I've been focusing on for the last 30 years but it's something that really worries me uh, because um, I think that it is my, my worry is that it is very damaging to men's view of women um, and, I, and, I, and we've seen recently you know, in in the UK, um, you know, just the, you know the extent of uh, men's uh, sexual abuse of women in all different kind of ways, and I and I think it's hard to resist the idea that that is in at least in part influenced by pornography and what men are, are seeing in pornography, which is
1: so immediately accessible now. Yeah, I mean, I was wondering also about the fact that you after you after you worked on the Achilles heel um you wrote quite often for some of the men's magazines didn't you and you know of course you know from today's perspective we, we tend to tend to see them as you know having uh accelerated a sort of lad's culture and uh you know a flight from commitment and you know playful sexuality or whatever but but quite quite damaging stuff and of course that seems to have all gone online now so mm-hmm. a lot of those magazines don't exist I, I wondered how you reflected on on writing for those magazines and you know your experience of them
2: yeah no it's a, it's a fair question i mean i've I, two magazines the two men's magazines that i wrote for which was about health issues mostly was um gq and maxim and i mainly for maxim magazine and i worked for them not on their as a freelance contributor on health and fitness for about four years and i and i always had uh mixed feelings about about working for a magazine like that um my you know i had conversations with the editor about some of their content and some of the you know images of women that appeared in the magazine but my feeling was that i was um by contributing stuff on health i was at least trying to change or support men to um, to, to look after themselves, to care for themselves uh, better in a small way. And I mean, I, you know, that's, that's, uh, I, I thought that was worth doing. And it gave me a platform to try and reach, a, you know, a, a large, a large number of men, mainly younger men to get that kind of message across. And yeah. it, it was through, it was also through working for, for not, I didn't only write for those magazines. I wrote for, you know, quite a large number of other publications as well. At that time, uh, as a, as a freelance journalist, And it was through that work, particularly as I focused on more and more men's health in my writing, that I came into contact with people in the men's health field uh, and kind of got sucked into the orbit of the Men's Health Forum um, and eventually became its director and that became my my full-time work from
1: about the year 2000. So you mentioned, Peter, about, um, you know, writing for men's magazines and some of the tensions around doing that. I mean, I wondered if that also occurs in the field of, of men's health more generally, you know, how you might want to use traditional conceptions, images of masculinity to actually get messages to men and thereby reinforce that traditional masculinity if you're not careful. Is, is that attention in in the men's health field? Yeah, it's a very good question, and it
2: absolutely is attention in in the men's health field. And I think we've we've always kind of walked a bit of a tightrope between using uh, imagery or language or uh, tools that that actually appeal to men um, without without doing so in a way which actually reinforces traditional masculinity. Um, I mean. I, well, one of the things we did at the Men's Health Forum, for example, is to produce health information in the style of a car maintenance manual. Um, and these were booklets published by Haynes, who, as you probably know, used to, I think they still do, publish car maintenance manuals. You know, men, when they when they uh, bought a car, always used to buy a Haynes manual to go with it, so you could sort of take it apart and then sort of fail to put it back together again. So, you know, that was that was what men did. So that brand... Was very associated with you know men who wanted to fiddle around with their cars. Now you know we used that, we piggybacked on that and produced. Produced and the self form still produces these booklets. They're less, they less, they're still part with the Haynes brand on them. They don't look like car maintenance manuals anymore, actually, but that's how they started. But they still, they're still branded by Haynes, and we used that very deliberately as a way of producing something that men would tr- a brand that men would trust. They feel comfortable picking up. And there was a good chance they might read it. And, you know, all the evidence is that many men did read those, those booklets. Uh, and, you know, that we can also show where, they, where they, some of these materials were evaluated, that it did result in men making some changes in their health. So, you know, to improve their health. So it, they, they were effective. Uh, but nevertheless, there's always a risk when you do that, that you're reinforcing a kind of traditional view of masculinity. That, you know, men, are, men think of, them, of their bodies as cars and uh, machines and, and all the rest of it. It's been a similar thing around football i mean some of the most successful um men's health pro- programs have set out to use football in different ways to to reach men so holding events uh meetings uh, clinics at football grounds for example um one of the one of the best known programs uh football fans in training based in scotland highly effective the men who go through that program uh, generally, lose weight. They get physically fitter. Their diets improve, but you know they're doing they're doing this with in, in, in football stadium. Now, I actually don't see anything wrong with that. Um, you might argue, you might think that that is reinforcing a traditional type of masculinity, where you know, which suggests that all men are interested in sport and football and all the rest of it. But nevertheless, a lot of men are just as a lot of men are interested in their cars, and if that actually helps them um, take steps to improve their health. I think that's great. Um, I think but you've always got to be careful that you're not doing something which is actually reinforcing a traditional view of masculinity at the same time. Mm-hmm. I think you know it's a, it's a, it's it's a tightrope but I think most of the time we we've, we've, we've got it right and certainly you know we would never produce or I would never be involved associated with you know, if a, if a booklet put a, a woman in a bikini on the front of it to appeal to, to men that way, that's not something that I would feel was ever acceptable or, you know, and, and I would never be involved in anything like that because that is, you know, sexist and, and all, you know, all the obvious things about how that would reinforce the traditional notion of masculinity that, that, is, that is harmful. So I think, I think most of the time we've, we've got it
1: right. You made me also think, actually, when whilst you were talking about the Men's Sheds movement as well, which perhaps is another example where, you know, men can go along to local, uh, well, sheds <laughs> and do DIY type activities. But yeah. at the same time, that might provide a forum where they can discuss some of the sort of, you know, health issues or isolation or loneliness they might feel. So, you know, again, that seems perfectly justifiable. I mean, it may not suit all men, of course, but but uh, it's along the same lines that you're talking. It absolutely is. And we, and we know
2: there's now a lot of evidence that men who go to sheds, have, uh, their health is improved. Their social, social isolation decreases, um, they, they are physically and mentally healthier because of their involvement in, in, in sheds. But as you say, Sandy, we have to be careful. We mustn't assume that all men are interested in cars or football or you know doing woodwork because that's clearly not the case. And the challenge, of course, is to design um, services that reach all men. Um, not just you know men who are who, who fit a certain template
0: yeah and you've, you've described yourself there I suppose as well as, as perhaps coming from this pro-feminist background and and some people might be surprised you know to know that you work primarily on men's health but you also would you know see yourself as being kind of pro-feminist um so I was just wondering if you could explain like how you see these uh, two things connecting with each other you know do they uh, connect with each other and in, if so in what ways that's a that's a good question um
2: I think that, um, I, I certainly think we wouldn't be where we are in men's health if it hadn't been for feminism. Um, we wouldn't have a men's health movement, uh, which is like anything like what it is, if it hadn't been for feminism. We have, might have some kind of reactionary, kind of men's rights kind of health movement, but that's not, where the, that's not actually where the men's health movement comes from, and those groups don't actually have much serious influence over, the men, over men's health activities around the world thankfully um so i I think we we owe a huge debt to feminism and the women's health movement um because they've really not only shown that that you you can do this work on a on a gendered basis but also given us an understanding of how gender impacts on health um and how how our health outcomes are you know that gender is is one of the social determinants of health I think that understanding comes out of out of feminism. The other thing I think, which I think is really important, is that I think we, we fell into this trap in the early days, and we, we, don't, we don't anymore, which is to actually see men's health in some kind of competition with women's health, as if it was a, a binary issue and a, a zero-sum game. So, you know, if women's health was getting loads of money, that wasn't fair, because men's health wasn't getting any of it. Uh, so we had to kind of... Re- Balance that in some way. I think what we now realise is that we need more resources for both men's health and women's health. That that we can work together, men's health organisations and women's health organisations, to put gender on the agenda. And that if we speak with one voice around that issue, we're going to get further. Uh, I think than if we if we existed with you know some kind of uh, in some kind of state of tension or let alone opposition. So i'm I'm very keen to uh, deepen links with the women's health movement and to see how we can you know not 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 become one movement which is around gender and health. I think that would be premature, but ultimately when might get to that point, but at this point, how we can you know work on our own not a on a kind of twin track basis, each kind of uh, working with our own constituency, but working together where that's helpful. And recently, you know, I, I, Global Action on Men's Health and Women in Global Health uh, collaborated on a, a paper which was published in the BMJ, precisely on this, on looking at how the kind of two wings, if you like, of the gender and health movement can collaborate to achieve more together than we can separately.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I I suppose one thing you said there is that, of course, feminism has helped us so much to understand gender and how it's socially constructed. And I was just wondering if you could perhaps say a bit more about that. Like, uh, do you think that gender norms, you know, constructions and expectations of of masculinity have a significant impact on men's health and well-being? And and if so, you know, can you perhaps describe some examples of of that, like how those gendered expectations do impact men's health? Sure.
2: I mean I think we, we know, um, if we look at kind of sex and gender, if we look at the sex bit, the biological bit, we know, and I'm, I talked about Covid and men's weaker immune response to Covid infection, that there is a biological issue here, um, that, um, but it's reckoned in the UK there's about a four year uh, difference in life expectancy on average between men and women. It's reckoned about one of those years is probably down to biology. We'll never do much about that. That's kind of built into the system, if you like. We'll never get rid of that. But we could get rid of 75% of the difference. Now that 75% um, is in large part down to, I think, is is about gender. And it's about, um, part of it is about the the way in which men are brought up to think about their health, um, to take risks, uh, to not ask for help, uh when something goes wrong um and to not really admit want to admit weakness or vulnerability uh and we see this particularly in the in the area of, of mental health i think there are particular mm-hmm. men have a particular reluctance to uh, to uh, admit to a, a problem to understand they may have a problem and to and to ask for help um it's not only it's not only in mental health but i certainly think we see it there more acutely than perhaps in relation to some of the the physical health problems so that's, that's an important area where gender has an impact. And we know that those men who conform m- most closely to, to what you could call traditional gender norms are the ones who have the poorest health outcomes. We now have research that actually demonstrates that. So clearly gender um, has a role. But also, it has a, there's a bigger picture here, which is about things like um, uh, ge- the gender differences in employment. Um, So we know that men, for example, are more likely to work full-time, they're more likely, because of the nature of the work they do, to travel further, to commute further to and from work, so they're away from their home for longer, which can make it harder to access health services. Um, And I suppose the other uh, side of it is that health services haven't actually taken account of gender norms and differences in gender norms between uh men and women. So services haven't actually desi- haven't been designed in a way which actually reaches out to them, takes account for example of their work patterns, that would be one aspect of it. So it makes it easier to access services at times that are more convenient for men who work full-time and travel long distances to and from work. Um, and it also means in terms of their communications that they haven't actually reflected gender in that and kind of presented. The- I mean when when a company uh, sells a product, like, right? you know, if you think about Diet Coke, for example, the, the Diet Coke didn't sell to men, so they rebranded it as Coke Zero. <laughs> and because they, they thought that would appeal to a man, now the, the health service doesn't do anything like that. It doesn't kind of rebrand itself to appeal to men, or to, you know, in a way that might make men more likely to use the service. Um, so one of the things that we've consistently argued for is, you know, services that actually go with a grain of gender, if you like. That actually take into account the way they're designed and delivered uh, to make it easier to make men feel more comfortable about using them, and to make it easier for men to use them. And of course, we have to we have to do you know all the stuff around um, improving men's health literacy, uh, you know, working you know, doing more with boys so they they grow up with an understanding of health, how to use services, and all the rest of it, which kind of chips away at some of the impact of gender norms, uh, which which affect boys and young men as they grow up.
0: Yeah, so I suppose the flip side of of that, isn't it, is that actually, if we work with men and boys to shift some of these ideas about masculinity or open up ideas about masculinity, that in turn could have positive impacts on their health. And and actually, men caring more for our own health and that of others is actually shifting those masculine expectations as well. Well, that. I think that's absolutely
2: right. I mean, you know, it's. I think if we if we if we if we succeed in um, engaging men in health better, that is. Changing the way they are as men, we don't have to make, we don't have to do that explicitly. Um, I think that would, you know, drive a lot of men away if we tried to do that explicitly. <laughs> but I think that's hap- that's happening implicitly. If we, if, you know, a man who who cares for his own health is not, you know, behaving in a way which is consistent with traditional gender norms. Yeah. So he, you know, he is changing um, yeah. in in all sorts of ways by by doing that. Yeah.
1: Well, I was just gonna say that, you know, by by raising men's own health care, you know, they're also making you're also making them think about care for others as well. And yeah. care for the community more widely. You know, and clearly we've just we've just been going through this terrible pandemic, you know, where care has been front and centre. And so there are issues about how we, you know, maintain that kind of focus really and develop it. Mm-hmm. And and maybe that, that, you know, this pivotal moment is hopefully something that we can build on.
2: I th- that's a really good point, and I hope and I very much hope that you are right. Um, also, I think I just it occurred to me, you know, that there's another point here as well, which is that gender equality is actually good for men, um, and men's health. You it's I mean, it's, gender equality is obviously a, you know, a moral imperative, but it's also good for men's health. And we see that quite clearly that the more equal, gender equal a society is, the better men's health is in that society, and the and the lower the difference in health outcomes between uh, men and women. And of course, better men's health is, is good for women's health as well. Um, we can see that particularly clearly in the area of sexual and, sexual and reproductive mm-hmm. health. Um, obviously, you know, the, the health of the two sexes is inextricably linked, um, mm-hmm. but in other, in other areas as well. Um, um, in, 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 and that's true in, probably in all communities.
0: Would you say there are any particular, you know, men's health issues in the UK currently which, which are particularly pressing or but perhaps don't get that much attention or, you know, anything which you would like our listeners to kind of know about, which they might not already, about, you know, men's health needs in the UK currently? I think the other
2: area I'd have to mention is around mental health. And Sandy mentioned this, this earlier. I think that's still a really pressing need. The suicide statistics are still grim, but that's the, the, the tip of the iceberg. Um, and we're still not seeing enough men coming forward for support and treatment for, you know, common mental health issues like depression and anxiety. And I have a particular concern about the increase in body image disorders, uh, particularly in younger men. And I think we're seeing a real explosion of, you know, younger men who are uh, experiencing uh, exercise addiction, uh, feelings of not being, you know, muscular enough going to the gym obsessively and in many cases taking anabolic steroids uh to try and you know beef themselves up um and i think this is this is something that's kind of still very much under the radar um and which is which is very worrying
0: yeah that is interesting isn't it because on the one hand that feels like that is a shifting norm about men caring more about how they look but actually on the other hand as you say that's actually quite stereotypical isn't it about that men should look muscular and it's about having strength yeah. and yeah i think there's a i think it's i
2: mean i you know i i, I see this I've got, I've got two sons and i see this you know in, in their peer groups mm. uh there is a real c- concern about appearing lean and muscular. Um, and gym use. I mean, going, going to the gym is great. I wouldn't not. I go to the gym myself, but but I think there's a, a point where it can easily flip over um, into being obsessive, um, and you know, and and becoming a a, a preoccupation and damaging to someone's self-image and, and mental health. And I think we need to be more alert to that. And I think we still have this idea that those kind of problems. I mean, I think more. These problems are more common in, in, in women. Uh, but I think we still have this idea that it's a women's only uh, problem at the moment. I think we need to change that.
1: One of the other areas that we wanted to just raise with you, and I think we mentioned in the introduction, um, is the area of HPV, where we know you've been active. And indeed, you know, you, you've got a, an award, Royal Society for Public Health Award, for an astounding contribution on, on championing public health for your role in achieving HPV vaccination for boys in the UK. So perhaps you'd like to tell us a little bit about that campaign and why HPV vaccination is, it is really important for boys.
2: Yeah, it's an interesting one, this. I mean, I, This very much came out of the work I was doing in, in Men's Health, towards the end of my time at the Men's Health Forum, in fact. And I didn't really know much about HPV, like a lot of people, It was I barely heard of it. Uh, this is going back to about 2010, 2012, something like that. Um, I, just to, in case sort of any of the listeners don't, don't know much about this, HPV is the human papillomavirus, as you said which is a very common sexually transmitted infection. About 80 or 90% of people will uh, acquire HPV at some point in their lives. Um, And and basically anybody who's sexual is highly likely to to be infected with HPV at some point. Um, Most of us shake it off, uh, deal with the virus without any side effects at all. Uh, But some people, um, for reasons that aren't always clear, Uh, it can go on and cause a range of cancers the best known of course in in uh, women uh, is cervical cancer uh, where virtually all 99.9 percent of cervical cancers are caused by HPV infection Uh, but it it can also cause um, penile cancer uh, certain head and neck cancers uh, um, and um, anal cancer Um, and these can all affect men so uh, about about 20 to 30% of all the cancers caused by HPV are in men. So it seemed to me that this was was a a men's health issue as well as a women's health issue. Now, in 2008, uh, the UK government introduced vaccination for girls. Uh, People are normally vaccinated against HPV at the age of 12 or 13. That's the optimal time because it's just before people become sexually active. So that's that's the time you have to do it. Girls have been vaccinated in school, the UK had a very, still has, till Covid came along anyway and interrupted it, a very successful vaccination programme for girls with about 80 to 85% of girls in the UK vaccinated, which by international standards is a very high level. Um, But boys of course were excluded from that and that didn't seem to be right because we knew that probably around 2000 cases of cancer a year in males Uh, could be prevented and weren't being prevented and of course you know men who are who have sex with men are completely unprotected by a girls only vaccination program Um, and rates of anal cancer uh, in uh, men who have sex with men are very high so this was um, you know this was very much to my mind a men's health issue that needed to be addressed so um, I I and uh, and, uh, some colleagues uh, basically started a campaign which was to be known as HPV action Um, and eventually we we got 50 50 or so organisations from a wide range of backgrounds signed up to support the campaign which had the single goal of achieving gender neutral HPV vaccination in the UK and it took us six years um, but we got there in the end uh, managed to persuade the government's advisory committee um, through what was quite a an effective political campaign, run on minimal resources, I should say, um, to get them to change their minds. And from 2019, September 2019, uh, boys have been part of the vaccination program alongside girls. So I do see this as a, you know, a real leap forward um, in public health, and particularly for the health of, of men and boys. Mm.
1: Well, I'm sure there are many parents and young people up and down the country who are very grateful to you for the work that you and others did on that campaign. I mean, it sounds uh, sounds very important and, and fantastic that you achieved. What are you What do you set out to achieve? Well, that's, um, that's it's kind it's, kind it's rather unusual in campaign terms. Let's face it. But
2: well, to actually win something. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but um, but I think we're coming towards the end now. But um, and you've said quite a lot about. This, but I, I wondered whether there's anything else you've learned from your work, your research about what works to improve and uh, and engage men and boys' health and well-being and and uh, involve them in these issues.
2: Well, it's a it's a it's a good question. I mean, my my main interest now um, is to try and work at the policy level um, because I don't think we can we can achieve we can we can run lots of small projects. We know what to do with men now internationally you know, over the last 10, 20 years, there's been a huge amount of research, um, well-evaluated projects. Which We know pretty much what we need to do to get men engaged in their health. But what we're seeing are lots of short, small, relatively short term, small projects um, you know, maybe lasting six months or a year, and then they run out of money or the person who was running them gonna you know, moves on to always given a new job or something like that to make these changes System-wide, we need to have effective policies, um, and i have become a big advocate of uh, two things really. One is men's specific men's health policies at the national, international, national, and local levels, which give a strategic direction to men's health. Um, I mean, they've got—they've got to be the right, you know, policies which are kind of designed and you know in the right way and have a clear com- commitment to implementation and so on. But I think policies are essential. And also the other thing we need to do, is to make sure that other health policies, whether it's on cancer, sexual health, diabetes, obesity, whatever it is, take men into account as well. So all those policies should be gender proofed. So they should look at the needs of men and women but um, have you know, specific components in them which address you know, men's health needs. Mm-hmm. And if we can do both those things, have the overarching men's policies and the the gender component component in other policies, then I think we'll we'll, we'll get much further more quickly uh, than we have been over the past few years.
1: Right. I mean, you mentioned the the policy level there, but what what do you think the barriers are or the opportunities are in in trying to achieve the kind of uh, changes that you you've just set out?
2: Well, I think the barriers are that there's still. Uh, some resistance to taking men's health seriously there's a kind of fatalism around men's health or a view that it's all men's health men's own fault because you know they take that they, they they do idiotic things um so there's a lack of understanding perhaps of of gender and the role that that plays in determining you know what what men do how they think and how they behave so there's a bit of sort of lot of blame i think which is attached to men um i think that there's, 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 I think it's still... When people talk about gender, they still think it means women, um, and not men and women. Uh, so I think that's a that's a barrier as well. Um, and I think there's also perhaps a lack of understanding of the economics of this, that if we actually invested in men's health, um, it would actually save an awful lot of money. Um, because, you know, uh, men who, who are walking around uh upright are far cheaper than men who are lying down in hospital um (laughs) that seems pretty obvious to me um and particularly as we have an aging population now it's actually if we can keep men fit and healthy for longer that will save an awful lot of money Um, and of course there are economic benefits in the workplace if you've got sick men who are taking time off work that's that's expensive for employers so i think the economic case for men is under underestimated um and you know i think if, if politicians in particular understood that better we'd probably make some faster
1: progress thanks peter it's great to hear you know how much is going on how much progress is being, being made by yourself and and those people you're you're working with i mean i think it's quite inspiring really and uh, as a man i'm going to try and keep upright as long as i can and uh, just thank you for for being with us today thanks it's been a real pleasure thanks thanks for inviting me
0: yeah thank you so much peter
1: thanks So, Stephen, that was a great interview with Peter. I think I, I learned quite a lot from what he had to say. So what, what did you think?
0: Yeah, I learned a lot as well, to be honest. Um, I mean, one thing I was reflecting on at the end there when he was talking about policy is, you know, why is it that we we still live in a patriarchal society? You know, most people in policy making are still men. Uh, And yet it is the case that, you know, these different kind of men's health needs and issues, which Peter discussed, are are neglected by a lot of these policymakers. Um, And I I feel like is that perhaps down to two things? Uh, First of all, it is perhaps the influence of these ideas about masculinity on people in power, whereby there is a reluctance still to recognize or talk about the vulnerabilities that men have, you know, whether that does come to Uh, mental health or or our physical vulnerabilities in in terms of being human um and also something which which we've talked about before as well about how actually um you know, when we are talking about men's health needs, it's particularly groups of men, as, as was discussed by Peter, that that tend to suffer most from these problems. You know, it is working class men, men on low incomes, uh, men from ethnic minority backgrounds, gay, bisexual, trans men, who these issues are often affecting most because of those intersecting structural inequalities. And those groups, you know, do always get neglected by policymakers. You know, they're just not taken seriously or prioritized a lot of the time. Um, and, and a lot of these issues issues do come back to poverty uh, and those structural inequalities as as well as gender. Um, yeah. What did you think?
1: Yeah, there were several things that struck me, Stephen, um, as being important. One was uh, the way he described how the men's health uh, movement, if I can describe it as such, had moved away from a more sort of competitive notion with um, women's health and was moving towards uh, discussing Discussing gender and health together—that um, seems to be quite an important um, transition, if you like. Um, I mean, he said that you know he still, at this stage, would like to preserve some specific focus on men's health separately, but that perhaps in future, you know, um, we would have a properly gendered health approach. Um, i think that's interesting and i i think you know sometimes we've uh, from a sort of pro feminist side we we've let some of these issues that he was talking about be colonized by um you know more traditional approaches if you like which don't really take a, a properly gendered approach so so i thought that was important um mm. the other thing that i i really um appreciated and thought was interesting was the discussion of some of the tension over uh, how to reach men? The messaging one might use, the the locations one might approach men, all of that, all of that stuff, really. Whereby, you know, you may um, find yourself using quite traditional means in order to to reach men. And you know, what are some of the sort of pluses and negatives around that? That that's interesting too. Um, and finally, I think um, it was very interesting that Peter came out as a Gilbert and Sullivan fan because I didn't really know that about him before and uh, I now see him in a different light
0: <laughs> yeah absolutely you, you learn you always learn something new from these from these podcasts <laughs> but no I think that's a really good important point as well about how can we make sure that because obviously there's a lot of women's health issues and needs which are continue to go very much neglected as well. So that obviously that yeah, it's, there's questions there about how can we advocate for gender to be taken into account more in policy both yeah for women, men, LGBT uh, people. Um, absolutely. But yeah, uh, thank you very much, everyone for listening. And uh, we'll speak to you again soon. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Now and Men. Any references we mentioned will all be in the show notes.
1: You're welcome to email us at nowandmen at gmail.com if you'd like to ask us questions or suggest a guest.
0: And we're really keen that the podcast should be listened to by as many people as possible to encourage more men to think about issues of masculinity and gender equality. So please do follow Now and Men so the latest episode drops in your podcast feed as soon as it's released. You can also leave a review and share it among your friends and colleagues and look out for our next episode coming soon.
1: So you take care, take care of each other and speak to you again soon.